Hello, and welcome back to The Perfect Puzzle. We're going to be talking a little bit, uh, well, a lot in the book about Ezekiel. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can uh, find your way to Ezekiel chapter 28. And while you're doing that, I'll talk a little bit about Ezekiel and his writing. The time of Ezekiel's writing you know, was during a Jewish exile to Babylon, and it was in the 6th century B.C. Uh, that makes him a contemporary of Daniel. The Jews were exiled in 597 B.C. Uh, Ezekiel began prophesying in 593 B.C. With his last recorded message is dated to 571 B.C. Now, the book itself, the prophet first, details the reasons why judgment is going to come on Judah. That's in chapters 1 to 25. Then he goes on to declare judgment on the other sinful people surrounding Judah. That's chapters 25 to 32. And he ends with an assurance that one day God's people will return to the land and be reconciled with God. That's in chapters 33, the end of the book, uh, chapter 48. Now, there's a lot that's, that's difficult, even hard to understand in, the, in this book. Jewish rabbis used to forbid men from reading it until they were 30 years old because it was thought that maturity was needed to understand the message of Ezekiel's prophecy. One thing, uh, give an example, God tells Ezekiel that his wife is going to die from a stroke in chapter 24. And then God goes on to tell Ezekiel that when his wife dies, he is not to grieve or weep over her to serve. And that's to serve as a sign that Jerusalem is to be destroyed without wailing or lamentation. That's uh, Ezekiel 24, verse 15. He's the most spiritual of all the prophets because he, dealt, he deals particularly with the person of God. You know, it's been said that Ezekiel is the prophet of the Spirit as Isaiah is the prophet of the Son, and Jeremiah the prophet of the Father. But if you found your way to chapter 28 now, it begins with Ezekiel's prophecy against the prince of Tyre. Uh, Tyre was the major city of trade in the Mediterranean world, and God is pronouncing judgment upon it because it'll, excuse me, because it laughed at Israel and Jerusalem at the fall of the temple and the siege of the Babylonians. Within chapter 28, there's not only a judgment upon the prince of Tyre, but God also is going to speak about Lucifer. And that's why I've named this study Lucifer's Life Story. So if you're there, let's jump right in. Uh, read with me. Uh, we begin reading chapter 28. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of God, Say to the ruler of Tyre, This is what the Lord God says. Your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the sea. Yet you are a man and not a God, although you have regarded your heart as that of a God. Oh, yes, you are wiser than Daniel. Now, it's interesting, Daniel has a reputation already with Ezekiel and with the people in captivity. Now, what's even more significant when we begin to see the spiritual significance of this chapter is that Daniel is known by the forces and principalities of evil. In other words, Daniel is known in hell. I'm on with uh, 
verse 3. Yes, you are wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired wealth for yourself. You have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. But your heart has become proud because of your wealth. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Because you regard your heart as that of a God, I am about to bring strangers against you, ruthless men from the nations. They will draw their swords against your magnificent wisdom and will pierce your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit, and you will die a violent death in the heart of the sea. Will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of those who, who, who slay you? Yet you will be only a man, not a God, in the hands of those who kill you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of strangers. For I have spoken. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Now, at verse 11, the focus changes. The word of the Lord came to me. And then at verse 12, the direction of who, has been, who is being spoken to changes. It's a separate word from the Lord, and it's to a different person. Son of man, lament for the king of Tyre. Verses 1 to 10 were directed to the prince of Tyre. Now it's the king of Tyre. Son of man, lament for the king of Tyre and say to him, This is what the Lord God says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you, carnelian, topaz, and diamond beryl, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold. They were prepared on the day you were created. You were an anointed cherub, for I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence, and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God, and banished you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you down to the ground. I made you a spectacle before kings. You profaned your sanctuaries, by the magnitude of your iniquities and your dishonest trade. So I made fire come from within you, and I consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of everyone watching you. All those who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become an object of horror and will never exist again. You know, I don't know how many times I've been asked who I think Satan really is. That may not be a surprise to you, but what should surprise you is that almost all the questions I get come from people who uh, have referred to themselves as born-again Christians. It reminds me of an old Twilight Zone show where a man's walking through the countryside in Europe. It gets dark. He gets lost. There's a fierce storm. 
And finally, he sees an old castle all by itself in the middle of the forest while the storm continues to rage. So he decides to go try to take refuge in the castle. He knocks on the door and pleads for shelter. And finally, the monks let him in. They seem hospitable, but they're not quite what you would call friendly. But they give him some food. They let him roam around and see the castle. Then the man happens up, up upon a cell in the basement, and inside is a very handsome and pleasant man. Now he's begging this man to help him escape. He said the head monk was crazy, and he had kept him locked up there for nearly 20 years. Now the, so the man confronted the monk, who told him that the man in the cell was really Satan, and as long as he was locked in the cell, the world was safe. Now, he figured that monk was crazy, so he went back down and he unlocked the cell door. Now, the nice man in the cell slowly came out and stood up and stood uh, in front of him. And all of a sudden, the nice man, just been freed, turned into a hideous monster, sneered the sneer of evil, and then in a poof just disappeared. And his evil laughing could be heard echoing away in the darkness as the reality of what he did came to, came to the man. So he ran to the monk to apologize and ask forgiveness. He said he didn't recognize the devil because he looked so pleasant. And how many of us today could not recognize the devil if he were to appear in front of us? George Barna conducted a poll and asked if people believed in, in, in the devil as a living being or was he just a symbol of evil. And over 50% of American Christians said the devil was nothing more than a symbol of evil and that no real devil actually exists. Now I'm going to talk about that enemy of God, the great deceiver, whom the majority of Christians in this country don't even believe he, he exists. You know, I don't need to tell you that Lucifer is alive and well. I think it's self-evident by the fruit of his spirit that we see each and every day. The world, as the Bible teaches in 1 John 5.19, lies in the lap of the wicked one. You know, we can see that there is a revival of evil. Satan worship is at an all-time high. You know, the fastest-growing religion in the United States and probably other countries is, is Satan worship. Spiritism is never off of our televisions. Their so-called clairvoyance, horoscopes, and fortune-tellers are in our magazines, our periodicals, and our newspapers. If you go to the Barnes & Noble religious section looking for Christian books, you're going to find out that most of the books are, are about spiritism, witchcraft, astrology. If you can name it, there's a book about it. There's a revival in the black arts of darkness. Now, years ago, when my son was in first grade, he came home from school one day describing an experience he had in music class. Teacher put on some music and told the children to close their eyes. They were told to imagine traveling in a strange and wonderful land where they would meet a friendly creature who would be their guide in, in that land. You know, it was a guided imagery exercise. It's supposedly designed to reduce the stress of the first graders. 
who were in a different environment. The teacher also instructed her pupils to conjure up this friendly creature whenever they had a problem or needed someone to talk to. Now, I'm sure she thought she was being helpful, employing one of the new techniques she learned in college where she just graduated with her bachelor's degree in elementary ed education. But what she didn't realize was she had just introduced her first graders to the world of the occult. What she called guided imagery is the occult practice of astral projection. And the friendly creature was actually a spirit guide. It was a demon in disguise. Now, Neil Anderson and Steve Russo in their groundbreaking book, The Seduction of Our Children, reported that in a survey of hundreds of Christian teenagers, more than 50% of those who had entertained these so-called spirit guides also had impulsive thoughts to kill someone. That's on pages 39 and 44 of, of, of their book. What seemed so right and good was absolutely deadly. And it's that way with many occult practices. And by the way, those include yoga exercises, the use of tarot cards, the practice of fortune telling, palm reading, or something that you may believe is as innocent as playing with a Ouija board. You know, those things are masqueraded as stress reducers or harmless parlor games. But they're pathways by which Satan and his demons gain control of people's lives. The Bible warns us about those things in numerous passages. And there's coming a day when the world is going to come to realize just how hideous and destructive these satanic practices really are. Let me bring it home for you. Let's talk about Harry Potter for a minute. You may wonder why I'm referring to Harry Potter. It's an innocent series of novels for children. But the fact of the matter is, in our society, whether it's through Harry Potter or through horoscopes or through Satanism or Paganism Revived, you're going to find the devil wants everything in society to be under his control. And he's going to stop at absolutely nothing. He's ingenious in his methods and his organizational skills. And I want to publicly say that anything to do with Harry Potter is evil. Be under no illusion about it. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I will say that the author, J.K. Rowling, or Rowling, or however she pronounces her name, researched occult, pagan, and spiritualism resources to be as authentic as she possibly could in, in, in the book. As a student, she studied mythology at Exeter University in England. The philosophies that she found in paganism, neo-paganism, and Satanism are incorporated into the story of Harry Potter reason I'm telling you this is to warn you about the books and to warn your children and grandchildren about them. But more than that, I want you to see the ingenuity of the devil, the cleverness of how he brings society round under his control and influence. You know, the, the publicity of these particular books has brought together three of the biggest companies in the world, Coca-Cola sponsored them, those movies and books. 
Mattel, the company that makes most of the toys that you advertise with regard to any movie, is also a co-advertiser of Harry Potter. Then you have Warner Brothers, whose studio made the films. Now, it wasn't just a fad or a phase. Now, it's not like Teletubbies. After a few months or a year, they vanish and come off our screens. Three of the largest companies in the world have committed themselves to continue to bombard us with Harry Potter memorabilia advertising. Do you know about 2018, 500 million Harry Potter books had been sold in over 80 countries, over 80, 40 languages? Children all over the world are devouring these books. And some of them are 700 pages long. You know, they're devouring these books. And, you know, 700 pages, my opinion, that's nothing short of supernatural in the computer age that we're living in. You know, how can you get children today who, you know, that's to only be reading comics to read a 700 long page long book? You know, it's nothing short of magic. They're now recommended breeding in schools, and in certain cases, it's recommended they be read out loud by the teacher. The reason why is because Scholastic, the organization that publishes Harry Potter books, is the biggest seller of educational books to schools and has been for over 80 years. It's using its influence to get these books into the schools. You know, it's kind of ironic that you aren't allowed to pray in a school. You can't have a Bible-based message in any shape, form, or lesson in our schools. But children are being taught witchcraft through these books. And the Harry Potter movies, for instance, they're rated PG, PG-13. In other words, the subject matter of the movies is not considered suitable for young children, while at the same time, the books on which they are based are marketed to those same children. You know, have we lost our common sense? The Pagan Federation of America has now appointed a youth officer. According to them, it's because of the flood of inquiry since Harry Potter was published. Oh, but it's innocent. It's just fantasy. Let me remind you, Lucifer means light-bearer, the brilliant one, the shining one. And he has the capacity to charm people as an angel of light. Satan has a plan for the ages, just as God has a plan for the ages. And I believe Satan, more than ever, is concentrating on our children. I believe he is pushing in our generation more than ever for an explosion of godlessness onto the stage of a history that this world has never witnessed or ever will witness again. And the problem is that people, and sadly God's people too, are ignorant of Satan's devices, as Hosea the prophet said hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. My people are destroyed through lack of knowledge. 
Satan is numbing the church to his devices so much that professing Christians have now written books recommending Harry Potter to young Christian boys and girls. We are numbed to his activities in the church. We have been numbed to his activities in our home life, in education, and social pleasure. And more than ever, it's necessary for the Church of Jesus Christ to get back to the basics. The philosophical question that are handled, bandied about the halls of universities through every age are three questions. Where did, where did we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? And I want to ask those three questions of Lucifer in, in this study. And all those answers are in Ezekiel 28. You know, if you're going to fight an enemy, you have to know him. To do that, you, you need to trace his origins, follow his life story through to his end. Satan is described in Scripture as a thief, a murderer, and a liar. Jesus described him as the father of lies. And Satan does does not like his cover to be blown. He likes to appear as a little childish story. Now, he has a plan for the ages, but he doesn't want us to know that he is hastening to his judgment and doom. You know, he is going to get his just desserts. Some liberal scholars maintain, some Christians say, oh, Ezekiel 28 simply about the king of Tyre. You're reading too much into it. Well, first of all, some of those liberal scholars don't even believe in a personal devil. You have to understand that and be careful of the books you read. They don't believe in a person called the devil. Oh, it's just an evil influence in society. It's immorality. It's not a person. Now, I will agree. Verses 1 all the way through 6 speak about the prince of Tyre speaks of his pride, speaks of his wisdom, and it speaks of his wealth. And God says to him, Yet you are a man and not a God, though that you have regarded your heart as that of a God. So he's definitely talking about a man when he speaks of the prince of Tyre. I have no problem with that. Then in verses 7 to 10, he speaks about his judgment and the destruction of the Babylonians and the prince of Tyre. So what we see in verses 1 to 10 is definitely the ruler. His name was Ithobael II of Tyre. But I hope you see there's a transition in the text that you can't ignore at verse 11 and continues to verse 19. Ezekiel moves beyond an earthly saying, and all of a sudden he's not talking about the prince of Tyre. He's talking about the king of Tyre. And we're going to see this more clearly as we move through this study. The king, king of Tyre is the spirit that animates the prince of Tyre. And the fearful thing about this text is that it is Satan himself who is the real force of wickedness behind the prince of Tyre. If you think this is a far-fetched Go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. In verses 14 and 15, God addressed the devil through another person, the serpent. 
God spoke to the devil through the serpent. Then go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 23. And you see there, you have Peter, who had just confessed that Christ is the rock on which the church is to be built, is seemingly cursed by Jesus. But it's not Peter that's being cursed, but the spirit behind Peter, because the spirit behind Peter was trying to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. The Lord addressed Satan through Peter. Thou severest the things that are of man and not of God. Get thee behind me, Satan. So it's not unusual for God to address Satan through another person. He's done it already in Scripture. We see him doing it here in Ezekiel. Look at the passage and decide where this appears to be a description of a mere human prince, king, or a spirit operating behind him. Because I believe if you look carefully, you're going to see, first of all, his beginning. It speaks of this person in verse 12. God says, Son of man, lament for the king of Tyre and say to him, This is what the Lord God says. You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. God says he is full of wisdom Perfect in beauty, verse 15 says, From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways. So this, he is all wise. Perfect in beauty, he's absolutely morally blameless. And you're not going to try and tell me that the prince of Tyre is full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, and morally perfect, because God's going to judge him in the next few verses. You know, no man's ever been described like this, at least no man born in sin. And all have been born in sin, and we all come short of the glory of God. This can't be a mere human prince or king. If you go to verse 13, God says, You were in Eden in the garden of God. Now, some people have said, Oh, that's, that's Adam. Adam was in, the, was in Eden, the garden of God. But if you read on in this verse, it says, Every kind of precious stone co covered you. Carnelian, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold. They were prepared on the day you were created. Now, was Adam arrayed in jewels from the tip of his head to the tip of his toe? Now, of course he wasn't. It's not speaking of Adam. This speaking of something greater. This being is described as being covered with every stone fitted in beautiful settings of finest gold. Now, the only time you find these jewels mentioned together elsewhere in Scripture, and the only place is in the book of Revelation, where the saints of God who stand in the glories of God and worship God are covered in these same jewels. This great angelic leader, this spirit being, is covered in the same. He's a mass of brilliant color. But there's one thing we know about gems and diamonds and precious stones. They don't have any light of their own. If you take a diamond into a dark room, you won't see anything. They reflect another's light. And this is speaking spiritually of this creature. He is the one who reflects another light. 
His beginning was to reflect the very light of the universe, the light of God. It may be that before his fall, he was given charge over creation. One thing is for sure, though, a prince of Tyre was never in Eden. Verse 13 says, your mountings and settings were. Now, your Bible may say there are your tabrets and your pipes. Now, those two words, mountings, settings, and tabrets, and pipes, now, there's two words, they're translations of Hebrew words for musical instruments. Some Bible translations substitute that first word with timbrel or tambourine, but it's actually a small one-sided drum with a leather strap attached is beaten by with beaten with a stick or with your hand. Now I hope you know musical instruments were originally created for praising and worshiping God. What God is saying here is Lucifer had no need of musical instruments because he had a built-in organ to praise God. He had his own pipes and his own drums. Prophet is saying that Lucifer, because of his beauty, was a musical instrument. He himself was an instrument of praise and glory to God. He didn't look for someone to play the organ. He was not just singing a doxology. Lucifer was a doxology to God. You know, that would lead us to believe that Lucifer was in charge of praise in heaven. And you can see the picture beginning to be painted of this person. Then we see further in verse 14, his privileges. You were an anointed garden guardian cherub, for I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Now in the Old Testament, there are only three types of people who were anointed. There was the prophet, the priest, and the king. Certainly, God would never have referred to the king of Tyre as being anointed. There's nothing holy about that man. But this being is described as being the guardian cherub, the anointed cherub. Now, a cherub is an awesome angelic being whose purpose is to protect God's holiness. You remember when man sinned, there was a cherubim placed before the gate, gate of the garden with a fiery sword to make sure they didn't get in and eat of the tree of life and live forever in, in their sin. He was guarding the glory and the holiness of God. They vindicate God's righteousness. They protect and defend God's mercy. They execute God's government within the word of God. Remember in the book of Exodus where the children of Israel were told to build the Ark of the Covenant? The ark was to sit in the Holy of Holies. Moses was told by God in Exodus chapter 25, verse 20, that God's glory, the Shekinah, would dwell there, and his presence would hover between the cherubim and the top of the ark. Now, I hope you're getting the picture. In Exodus 25, the presence of God hovers above the cherubim, and here we have this vision of a specific cherub who is called the cherub that covers, the cherub that guards. It's a fearful thing, a fearful being that's symbolic of the holy presence of God and of God's inapproachability. It's amazing. 
Well, I believe this means that in eternity past, before earth existed, when there was the angelic creation, that this spirit being, Lucifer, had the responsibility to hover over and guard the very throne and presence of Almighty God. He covered God's presence. And verse 15 proves that to us. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. And at the end of the verse, 16, guardian cherub from among the fiery stones. Now Hebrews says, Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire. Now, all that discussion I just went through means that Lucifer was in the very presence of God, walking over the fiery coals of God's presence, hovering over, protecting the presence, holiness, and righteousness of God. He was anointed with great authority, and the amazing thing is he probably had unrestricted access to the glorious presence of God which explains the conversation and attitude with God in the first few chapters of Job. Of uh, Job. But that's a whole other study. If you look back at Ezekiel chapter 1, it's going to remind you of the awesome character of these cherubim. There's a graphic picture of them in verse 10 of chapter 1, where it says, The likeness of their faces, face of a man, the face of a lion, on the right side, and they four had the face of the of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. So they bore the likeness of a lion, a calf, an eagle, and a man. And looking at those four reflects the com- absolute completeness of the nature of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Prophetically, how Matthew presents our Lord Jesus as a king, like a lion, king of the jungle. Mark presents him as a servant king, the calf like the ox, a serving animal of the field. Luke presents Christ as a perfect man in his humanity and in his humility. And that's the face of the man in the cherubim. Then we have the face of an eagle. It speaks of the skies, speaking of his divinity, which is found in John's gospel. Think about this. Could it be that In these cherubs, we're seeing a representation of the presence of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, whose presence was hidden from view in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. I think that's something to think about. Please see the significance. I think you're going to agree with me with that. If you take all this stuff together, just a little bit too impressive to be describing the Prince of Tyre. that in its beginning, his person, his privileges, and then we look at his downfall, where it all went wrong. You know, the cause of his downfall is found in verse 17, where God says, Your heart became proud because of your beauty. Excuse me. This is a self-creation of the first sinner and all of the universe. When people ask, why did God create the devil? Well, your answer should be, God didn't create a devil. God created a perfect, moral, spiritual, glorious being. The devil created the devil when he sinned by inflating his heart with pride. Uh, You'll also see this in Isaiah chapter 14, which is 
the other Old Testament passage, it gives us a look into the life story of Lucifer. Go to verse 12 in Isaiah 14. God says again, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, who did weaken the nations? For you said in, in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Now, look how many I wills there are in verses 13 and 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. You know, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, Paul the Apostle, is instructing the church that when they're appointing elders, they're not to appoint a, a novice, one who's perhaps newly uh, saved or born again, or someone immature in their faith, or a young man that has not yet matured. When Paul was given this instruction, he used an example out of the beginning of Lucifer's life story, and he says it's not, he's, it's not to be a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. He's citing the sin of the devil. Satan was lifted up with pride, and he fell into condemnation. You know, if pride is a deadly enough sin to destroy the most powerful, wise, holy, and awesome being that has ever been created, how much more do we need to make sure we're not walking independently of the Lord in self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and pride? We must make sure as God's people we're dependent upon God, that everything is handed into the hands of God. What we need to face is the question of, are we living in Satan's sin of self-dependence? Or are we puffed up with self-importance? You know, we need to remember we are only sinners saved by grace, and everything we have received came from the hand of God, not by anything we've done by ourselves. Satan's fa- fail, Satan's fall, excuse me, Satan's fall was caused by pride. Now we're going to see its consequences. It's alluded to here in Ezekiel in these final verses, 16 to 19 how God would put fire into his bosom, make a fire come out of him. The Lord Jesus himself, proven his pre-incarnate state as the word of God, the Son of God in eternity past, said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now the consequences of Satan's pride, other than being cast out of heaven, were that he went into the garden in the person of the serpent, and tempted Eve first, and then Adam ate, and by Adam's sin, sin came upon all men, and death came by sin. You know, we're in the mess we're in because of Lucifer and our forefather's sin. Now, that's his downfall. Now we come to his present activity. What's he doing now? I'm going to split that up into two parts, his present activity geographically and practically. Geographically means his realm, the realm in which he moves. Geographically, he moves in the realm of the earth, and especially in the realm of the air. The air is the scene of his tireless activity. Paul tells us in Ephesians 
to uh, chapter 2, verse 2, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of, the, of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. You know, Paul describes Satan as the prince of the power of the air. After creation, he entered into the serpent. He beguiled Eve in the garden by subtlety. And he secured the downfall of Adam, the whole human race, through Adam. In the beginning, Adam was made the manager of God's creation on earth. But Adam, through his sin, handed over his management and his his jurisdiction to the devil. Because of that, this world system is the devil's realm. This present world is organized upon Satan's principles. It is the bride that he tried to present to Christ in Matthew 4 in his temptation. Well, a horrible bride, an adulterous generation of a bride. But it was all he had to offer. He is the prince of this system. He's described in Second Corinthians as the god of this world as the prince of the power of the air. He is the head over all principalities and powers, all of the demonic kingdom and realm. He's the chief captain. Now, do I need to say to you as God's people that because of this we need to be separate from the world? Isn't it plain enough? If this is the devil's realm and the devil's system, is not, is, isn't that why James said to the church, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of a world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Are you flirting? Are you courting with the world? Now you can't do that as God's people. That's his geographic activity. That's his realm. Then there's his, his, his activity practically. And that's what he does in this world. And I've narrowed it down to two things. Apart from all that we have already mentioned. There's execution and there's a- accusation. Execution because to him and God permitted this was committed the power of death. Satan was allowed by God to assume the power of death. If you don't believe that, read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. When Christ died and rose again, he took the power of death away from Satan. He has execution, then there's accusation. Because although Satan was cast out of heaven, he still has access to heaven. He still has access to the presence of God. You can see that in Job chapter 1. In Revelation, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who comes before God and accuses you of your sins in the presence of God. And he has been permitted by God, for a short season, the power to sift or to test believers to make them stronger. Now, as as I start to close this lesson, I want to go take a look at the end of Lucifer's life story. We looked at his final destiny and the Savior's victory, and we've we've gone quite quite quickly over Lucifer's life story and his history from the beginning to what he's doing now. 
and you could categorize it all and put a title over it, Satan against the saints. Satan is at war against God, and it he's a, means he's at war against God's people throughout time. But I want you to see there's another agenda in history. There is another plan. That's God's plan. And that's the one that's going to prevail. In Genesis chapter 3, we see a plan given birth in verse 15, where God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God promised right at the beginning a Savior, and that Savior came, and in Matthew's Gospel, we see his temptation, and he was the first man ever, now listen carefully, who had nothing in him to be attracted to the temptation of the devil. But don't ever think he could not have fallen. Otherwise, it's not a temptation. But there was nothing of the prince of darkness in him. Jesus defeated him. Then he died, and in his dying, he slew death. Then he rose, and in rising, he brought captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Before his crucifixion, he gave a glimpse of his present ministry when he told Peter in Luke 22, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but be of good cheer. I have prayed for you that your faith does not fail. You know, praise praise God we have an advocate. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. But for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the power of our testimony. In the Savior's victory, the devil's destiny is sealed. You know, it's sealed in Bible prophecy. I believe at this moment, just as Satan has done in the past, he's trying to defeat the forces of God in the universe. All through time, he's tried to do this through through man, back to Eve in the very beginning in the garden, to Cain, who, who murdered Abel, to Nimrod, who was a mighty hunter in the sight of God and an abomination to God, through the pharaohs of Egypt, through the Herod dynasty, one in particular who tried to wipe out the line of Messiah. It was Satan's plan to get rid of God's seed. All those attempts failed. He has tried it through past and present day kings and leaders. Down through time, that has been his agenda to set the stage for a showdown between God and the forces of evil. Now one day, and I believe very, very soon, God will allow him to take the stage. The church and the Holy Spirit's influence in the church will depart in the rapture, and the devil and the devil's man will take the stage. God's going to allow it, so there's a showdown. So there's a grand finale. 
so that he can finally put an end to the kingdom of Satan and set up the kingdom of God on the earth. You don't need to look far to see that the spirit of Antichrist is already working as, as, as I'm speaking. Very soon, Satan will personify that spirit of Antichrist in his man of sin. It's amazing the parallels, isn't it? Look at the king of Tyre, a ruler controlled by the devil. And there's a ruler coming to this world who opposes, exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You know, we can look at the leaders and kings in our world, and we can even now perceive the promptings of Satan in their actions and in their politics. And it's despairing at times, isn't it? We ask a question. Why is there so much unrighteousness in society? Why is there so much injustice in our legal system? Why is there so much corruption in the government? I'll tell you why. Because the men that rule this world are only puppets in the hands of principalities and powers and minions of Satan. Now, if you look at Daniel 10, we don't have time, but you'll see the man of God, Daniel, on his knees in prayer for three full weeks before Gabriel, the angel of God, comes to him with the answer. When he gets there, Gabriel tells him, you know, your prayer was answered the first day you were on your knees, but the prince of Persia, the kingdom of Persia, withstood the angel of the Lord. Now, later on, Daniel had to wrestle again with the prince of Greece. Is there a better commentary in the book of, than to the book of Ephesians? Chapter 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's why we're to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Those who work through wicked spirits in the heavenlies, the world rulers of this darkness, and it's already working. One day soon, Satan's anointed is going to come forth. We won't be here when he comes. The sad thing about it, though, some of our loved ones will. Then after seven years of tribulation, where Antichrist will be manifested, and the great tribulation of God's wrath has been poured out upon this earth and all of its ferocity, ferocity, then there will be the battle of Armageddon. And that battle will be the battle between the seed of the serpent, Antichrist, and the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. Then the Lord shall consume him with the spirit of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. And I can't finish this without looking at Revelation chapter 19. Go to verse 17. And let this rejoice your heart, because this is Satan's destiny. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of the heaven. Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the good Lord, that you may eat the flesh of kings, 
and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Now that's the Lord Jesus. And the beast, the Antichrist, was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Now verse 1 of chapter 20 says, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. At that moment, the world's system will end. It's going to usher in the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. But at the end of those thousand years, there will be a last-ditch effort of the devil to overthrow God. And when the thousand years were passed, verse 10, chapter 20, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. You want to hear something? Read on. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. You remember the two demons and the two possessed people of the Gadarenes where the Lord spoke to them? You remember what they said? They cried out saying, what have we to do with thee, Jesus, the, you Son of God? Are you come to torment us before the time? See, they know they have an appointed time for destruction. And Satan's time is almost up. His doom is sealed, his last chapter is written, and the word of God has blown his cover. Forsake the world because it's going to be burned. Turn to the cause of Christ and the cross. Lord Jesus, as we worship you as the King of kings, Lord of lords, the victor, the captain of our salvation, and the coming deliverer of Israel and of this world, Lord, we bless you. We bless you that will, you will reign, Satan will be bound. And sin will no longer reign in human bodies. There's a day coming when a new heaven and a new earth will be ushered in. And we will be with, with you, Christ. And we can say, down here, that will be far better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. I'm sorry this was a long study. I hope you got something out of it. Thank you for staying with me through the end.